Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of After Smokes. Uh, you're getting two episodes this week, and uh, this is our regularly scheduled episode. It's about the Chinese Opium War, and this is a very special episode because my wife complains that Scott and Sean piss too much when they're <laughs> over the house. Wait, does she so, really? Uh, she's no, no. She just she doesn't complain, but she has made comments that you guys that you guys have very full bladders and you use our bathroom a lot, which is you know fine. Yeah, I think she's just not used to. Yeah, we're nervous. We want to give a good product to the people. Mm-hmm. And I think I probably pee less. I don't pee that much, but when I do, it's very strong. I have a very strong uh, piss stream. So anyway, I was at Walgreens today, and uh, I was I for as a joke, I bought some because uh, I was like, oh, babies wear diapers. So just for the hell of it, I said, let me buy, let me buy some adult diapers. And I did it the way that like people talk about buying condoms in the nineties where you're embarrassed. I got some hand soap and some other stuff so that the guy would just, you know, not realize, not think they were for me, but I am uh, wearing an adult diaper right now. So if I have to pee during the show, I'm, and I'm a little nervous. So we're going to talk about the opium wars. And then I, at some point I am going to pee into a diaper. <laughs> Yeah, Mike asked us <laughs> if Deb was in the room. He said, should I piss, piss in this diaper that I just put on? Yeah. I said it's good for the podcast. It's good Deb for the podcast. Said, please don't. I, at the Desert. very least, think there should be like some sort of timer, you know? Uh-huh. And s- something needs to happen, and, and and then it's like, yes, you got to piss. I don't okay. know. We'll figure it out. All right. Well, I do have to piss. I mean, I had a lot of club soda there. Oh, you have we just to, how much you have to pee? I have to take like a big one. That's why I'm kind of nervous yeah, about it. Yeah, I don't it. want you to leak. I don't want to leak either, but also, it's, I mean, like, it's my house. And then, yeah, but then it's just on your ass. Like you just got to sit in your piss. No, I'll, ch- I'll put another diaper on. You're going to just walk away immediately after pissing? Yeah, it's going to be a Sean, ep- it's a Sean right, episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let so Mike I, piss I, his pants. Actually, now, I don't even we'll have to really into, be here. Then we'll get into. My, I don't even Sean's. have to be here. Really, I'm just here to <laughs> piss yeah. my pants. What? I can't. I can't get up. How about we do something like this? I mean, the it's first my time equipment. Sean it's my house. You know what I mean? I do so you? much for this. What? Yeah. Once Sean says something shocking, go. Okay. <gasps> All I'm saying is, I do so much for this fucking show. I should, I should be able to leave an episode for five minutes to change my diaper. That's all I'm saying. Okay. All right. All right. Just let me know. All right. Take it away, Sean. Yeah. That'd be a good angle for this podcast is we all wear adult diapers and we bring like some serious journalists like Jeremy Skate. I want to we all just piss ourselves. <laughs> just like, I wanted us to all wear adult diapers. They just start smelling shit. Yeah. Just like the guy who's like risking his life investigating the Fort Bragg murders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, no, I don't smell anything you, actually. Did you just pee yourself? What kind like, of question is that? I thought you were prof- fuck? I thought you were a professional journalist. Wait, is this who Rolling Stone is hiring now? <laughs> you just come on somebody's podcast and you just make these kind of accusations. This is, I mean, podcasts need you know like games and gimmicks like this. That's I right. want, I want this to be an actual like show. Eventually, right. this will be an actual show that people consume. They watch videos and they watch clips. So yeah. we what need sort of games. Will you play? We need like games shitting, and gimmicks. Stuff. And What's your idea? What's your idea? What's your idea? That's a great what ideas, game. Shitting, what ideas do you have? What ideas diaper? do you have, Scott? That's awesome. Like a baby, but you're a so man. So what's an idea that you have? What's one idea you've ever had for this fucking show, Scott? <laughs> He's not pissing and shitting in a diaper. That's for sure. <clears throat> I am nervous because I do feel like I have a big piss coming. You're allowed. <laughs> no, I just it's don't know. Cow. I'm just worried if the diaper's going to hold all of it. Uh, I had was, to move my wife's electric blanket. Yeah, yeah Mike was wearing an electric blanket earlier, which would be the funniest way to die, pissing yourself on a podcast for a fucking bit. 
guy was gonna tell uh, Mike's gonna tell Deb later. I pissed through it, babe. I my feel pee, like my the, pee is so strong. I pissed. Through I feel the like the dynamic on. for this show is like I have ideas and you have ideas, and Scott just shits on them. <laughs> I think he's holding us down with his negativity. Yeah, but it's like no, this is you know like vegetables episode. I'm gonna talk about the Chinese opium wars, and you mm-hmm. know a little a, spo- a spoonful of sugar <laughs> makes the medicine go down. Right, and the sugar right. is the sugar. Mike is, my is wearing diaper. an adult diaper <laughs> yeah. that he's gonna pee into at some point. This is a very serious episode. Like this is a fucking radio show in 1998 <laughs> that comes on in the afternoons after Howard Stern. Oh, welcome to Opium Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, I am so high right now. <laughs> We're going to bring a homeless guy in studio and yell at him. That's Mike talking, by the way. Yeah. Opium Anthony. Opium Anthony, yeah. See, this episode's so much funnier than the last shitty one know, that we right? just did. That last one was great. Yeah, it was yeah, okay. Yeah. It was okay. But, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> look, the Opium Wars, I do got some stuff to get through, but I do think it's interesting. The Opium Wars were in China in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. There were two of them. Mm-hmm. And... Why they're relevant today is... And what was the Boxer Rebellion? That was something else? That was something else. That was later on. But this all starts out with the Chinese still called the Century of Humiliation, which Mm. starts in 1839 with the Opium Wars and then continues really all the way up until the end of World War II. Why is it the Century of Humiliation? They banned pants? (laughs) (laughs) It's the the Century... Stop, you're going to make me piss. (laughs) Stop, I'm going to piss myself. (laughs) Stop making me laugh. It's the the Century of Humiliation because uh, the Europeans, like the British... British, the uh, French, uh, the Americans, later the Japanese, they would all put these like unequal treaties on the Chinese because they would just beat the shit out of them militarily. And then they would say, hey, sign this treaty. You know, we get to uh, uh, we get to export opium into your country and you can't prosecute any of our citizens. And we get Hong Kong. That's how the British got Hong Kong. You know, we get our own little ports here, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they just didn't have a strong military. They didn't have a, a, a united country or, or what? Why yeah, they, they were eventually, by the 1800s, they were uh, technologically eclipsed by the Europeans. Right. So they, you know, they had a massive country. Because it makes you think, how did Europeans take over the entire world if they didn't have, like, superior brains? <laughs> you fuckhead. You know? Well, there's. I'm just thinking out loud. I'm just, you know. Uh, my friend actually told me a theory, which some people have, and you know, I, I don't know if it's actually true, but I do think it's an interesting discussion point, which is like empires without harems mm. did better mm-hmm. than empires with harems. What's a harem? A harem is like you know the emperor or whoever's in charge gets like 90 women he can fuck, and the idea would be the empires without the harems. Well, there's less societal uh, resentment and jealousy, just popular resentment. Because, like, the Chinese imperial harem uh, was a part of uh, the Chinese dynasty, which is fascinating because, you know, China was various emperors for almost 4,000 years, Mm -hmm. going back to 2000 B.C., or you know, even more than that, but uh, there were various uh, ruling dynasties in China, such as the Tang and the Ming, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they would have an emperor, and the emperor would have a harem. And they had different rules of the harem, but they also had, like, this ranking system and all that. And I don't know if you guys saw the um, the FTX scandal uh, when the, they stole all that money, but that uh, the lady, the, the, the CEO, Caroline Ellison, was the CEO of Almeida Research, and she was living in the Bahamas with that Sam Bankman-Fried guy. They were in the $30 million penthouse in the Bahamas, and they would just have orgies and be poly, which I, I do think is kind of funny, is like, 
just imagine losing all of your money in crypto so people can buy like nine people can buy a penthouse in the bahamas and yeah, have and the they all ugliest look like, orgies and, uh, they all look like they're in the marching band <laughs> <laughs> just like all these uh drama uh, high school theater kids just having like the most disgusting orgies with uh your your child's college fund you need to hear it in court yeah <laughs> mike deep. was a high school theater kid but anyway, so sure was. <laughs> Caroline Ellison uh, was the lady who was involved in this, and she's apparently cooperating with the feds uh, uh, against Sam Bankman Freed. But she has this quote. She was running a Tumblr, and people found it. And she posts a uh, quote When I first started my first foray into uh, poly, I thought of it as a radical break from my trad past. But to be honest, I've come to decide that the only acceptable style of poly is best characterized as something like imperial Chinese harem. None of this non hierarchical bullshit. Everyone should have a ranking of their partners. People should know where they fall on the ranking, and there should be vicious power struggles for the ranks. And so the idea is like the nine of them apparently lived in this Bahamas penthouse and like all fucked each other, but there were hierarchies and rankings and such. It's and like then real, real world road rules challenge, right? Didn't yeah. they do that yeah. one season? Oh, did they? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I think that was the opposite. There wasn't like a, they were all just fucking in the RV. <laughs> oh. But it, it is interesting, you know, like how this imperial harem worked like there's this uh, book from the 200s bc called the rights of zhao which uh, said feudal lords are entitled to nine consorts and cannot marry again after having nine consorts you know one wife eight consorts and you think the peasants were like well i, mean, I already did a chinese voice earlier <laughs> but i'm not going to do it again but yeah. you think the peasants were like the emperor gets too much pussy yeah and that's why they all resented him yeah Interesting. that's why there were so many rebellions interesting yeah. everybody interesting. else only got eight pussies yeah well it's like if you're a feudal lord you get nine pussies right right if right. you're an officer you get one wife and one consort uh-huh. and if you're just a normal person you just get one wife and to your point the people who got ripped off by bernie madoff they didn't have to hear about anything about his sex life wow so Robin Hood back then was a guy who stole pussy and gave it to everybody. Uh, yeah. It's a shame. What an awful world. But um, I just tried to pee and I can't. I can't get it out. <laughs> I can't get it out. It's like almost. It almost came out. But once it comes out, it's gonna. You're gonna piss on your balls and your ass. That's. I don't think that's fun. It, it'll be fun for the listeners, Scott. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Sean. Uh, the rights of Zhao, like the idea, they apparently set it up, and this again, it changed because the Chinese dynasties it lasted uh, well almost uh, four thousand years. But you know, the idea would be there would be one empress because they didn't want to have you know. Uh, oh, here it comes. <laughs> they didn't want to have disputes. <laughs> here it comes. Oh, how long? How long they does did, empress live for? A normal female lifespan. Oh, okay. But the idea They're would not be like turtles or anything. The idea for dynastic succession, the empress has to be the highest ranking female, and there can only be one because it's like her kids are going to take over. But then below the empress, you have the consorts, then you have the wives, then you have the royal concubines, then the hereditary consorts. And, you know, and like there's different numbers that you're allowed to have, like the final dynasty, the Qing dynasty. uh, One emperor in the 1600s had the record for 79 consorts. Whereas a different emperor in the late 1800s had the the fewest. How do you govern if you're fucking that many <laughs> women? Wait, but 79 women? That's yeah. not the most women. I look, I fucked nowhere near 79. Yeah. I fucked my one wife maybe but... once a week. Yeah, <laughs> but he fucked 79 women. He had 79 consorts, oh, and apparently so the uh, the fewest was the emperor who had just one empress and two concubines. But then, like, See, you know, that's good though. That's a yeah. nice arrangement. 
Yeah. But like, you know, and I, I'm not going to go through all this, but like the, again, every dynasty kind of changed up the rankings, but the Qing dynasty was the final dynasty and they had the rank, you know, empress. And then below that is imperial noble consort. The, decision, the women in the dynasties or the men? Probably the dudes. The dudes. Okay. But then, you know, there's like a whole imperial politics with the concubines and the imperial harems, like the consorts that attain, atta- uh, just according to Wikipedia, consorts that attain the rank of imperial concubine and above would be honored with residence in the main section of the palace in the Forbidden City and would have to be addressed by lowest rank- lower ranking concubines and servants. Uh, they would have to be addressed by your highness. So, you know, there'd be like noble lady and first lady and second attended and then lady in waiting was apparently used to call ladies who are basically prostitutes ladies in waiting but anyways the point is you know it's just a very fascinating system and that is uh, and they were open about it yeah it's yeah. like you know i mean that's the the french do have a similar system but then it's just like your wife and your mistress hmm. it's like but they don't have organized rankings. you're just organizing women at that point right yeah you're just putting different women in your in your shelves the whores go in this shelf you're just organizing socks yeah shame but they need something to do so they can like scheme for power and compete with each other and have rankings and such Mm -hmm. yeah they treated women like uh like a card game kind of right like a magic to gathering sort of situation right you get to have this many it's like chess but with pussy i have a blue balls deck with 79 concubines But anyways, that's a it's a digression, but I do think it's an interesting thing. And so, you know, the Chinese dynasties, incredibly enough, lasted almost 4000 years from before 2000 BC all the way up into the early 1900s is the final Chinese dynasty. The final emperor was overthrown. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Imagine knowing who Joe Biden was fucking. (laughs) (laughs) But why uh, to kind of bring it back to the subject, why I think the opium wars are relevant uh, even though they happened in the 1800s in China, it seems so distant, seems so far away. Well, the people who made the money off the Opium War, their descendants are still rich. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'll give you a few examples. Like, many of the great American and British fortunes, but also some, you know, uh, families in India and other places, many of those great American and British fortunes come from the opium trade. So, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president, his on his mother's side, the Delano family, they w- got rich off selling opium to China. And what does opium do for those who don't know? Uh, it's like a depressant. It's like a it's like a plant, I guess. Okay. But then people find out that you could smoke it and you could like you, and you it chill relax, out. you chill yeah. out. Yeah, yeah it's like Percocet. You ever do like Percocet per- or no, no? You ever do any opioids? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know what's an. I don't mm. know what opioids are. Uh, we should have brought some. Yeah. Scott can snort heroin. While I try on my diaper. <laughs> you said they're like Percocet? Yeah. Oh, we should have had Mike Rainey on. He has a book called On Perks Out. That oh, yeah. Buy. yeah. But okay. Whoops. But yeah. So it makes you kind of sink into a it couch. It makes you relax and, you know, like it, uh, heroin or whatever makes you feel like everything's wonderful. You're in bliss and, you know, I mean, people who inject heroin and get addicted say nothing else in life is anywhere close to as good. Hmm. So you just kind of zone out and everything's wonderful. And, and opioid Yeah, Mikey Stefano said it was like getting a blowjob while there's a puppy licking your face. <laughs> He's like, but don't do heroin. Don't do it. Um, but yeah, so the Delanos, that family, they got their money from uh, from opium sales to China. The Forbes family, Forbes magazine, they're an American family. Again, Forbes, yeah, they got their money 
selling opium to China. And then they took the profits of that and they reinvested in America. They bought up railroads and stuff. Mm. Um, the Jardine Matheson is a conglomerate. You know, most I hadn't heard of it, but it's... Do you think in 200 years people would be like, you know, there's a lot of wealthy families, the Chaplins, the McCarthy's, the Racines, <laughs> they, all got, they all made their fortunes uh, pissing in diapers on their, on their show. Um, yeah, uh, so the uh, Jardine Matheson is a conglomerate. It's by valuation, by uh, uh, stock capitalization. I'm peeing again, by the way. <laughs> ja- oh Jardine Matheson. Right, I'm going to change this diaper. <laughs> Jardine Matheson is one of the 200 most valuable companies in the world by market capitalization. It's based in Hong Kong, and that's to this day one of the 200 most valued companies in this in this world and it was founded by opium traders is uh, William Jardine and James Matheson um, <clears throat> William Jardine uh, had at the time in the 1800s one of the largest private opium smuggling fleets on earth uh, the bank HSBC a major bank was comes from Hong Kong also money comes from the opium trade so the point is like all of these uh, family these legacy wealth families and these institutions that are still around and extremely powerful today will they trace their wealth to this war in the 1800s in china which is why it's relevant even though it all seems so far in the past is like if you make money in the 1800s that money doesn't go away you just give it to your descendants and they invested in stocks or railroads or whatever the fuck and then now they get to uh make their living in an artist loft in williamsburg and uh, you know, not have to get a day job because their parents pay their rent. So none of this goes away, and it's all still relevant today. And it begins and ends with uh, shooting heroin. Yes. Or, and you know, another point is, like, you want to talk about, like, Pablo Escobar in Colombia, you know, the, the fucking Americans and Colombians killed, but he was just doing what the Forbes family did. You know, he was selling cocaine. It, like, a lot of quote-unquote legitimate fortunes just came from the drug traffic it's just entirely about do we think they're one of us or do we not think they're one of us but anyways i i wanted to talk about all this because my thesis or the thesis that i'm developing is like the current heroin crisis in the united states which is still an epidemic it's still a crisis in 2021 according to the cdc there were over 100,000 drug overdoses in the United States. This is up from like 40,000 a decade ago. No sign it'll slow down. There'll probably be 100,000 Americans dying every year of drug overdose for at least the foreseeable future. And so this current heroin crisis, I think about it essentially as like a domestic opium war. You know, the U.S. government has used drug mafia proxies in Italy, France, like the French Connection, the Corsican mob. They broke the strikes at the Marseille docks. Uh, the U.S. government's used drug proxies in Laos, Southeast Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bolivia, Colombia, Mexico, among other places. <laughs> ben just walked in. Mike had to leave to change his diaper. But no, it doesn't sound like what you think. He's not changing Ben's diaper. He pissed in his own diaper, Deb. And now he's in your bathroom changing it. And guess what? We no-sold it, too. I'm just, like, listening to Sean interested while Mike pissed his pants and we didn't (laughs) react to him. And then he walked quietly out of the fucking room to change his diaper. How cool is that? That's what you get, you know? You can't reward these things, right, Deb? Deb knows. Deb, Deb teaches kids. You can't reward this type of behavior. You got to no-sell it. You laugh at him, he becomes Bam Margera. You know what I mean? Oh, my God. <laughs> he is 
What do you mean taste test? Like, like, like the two cans of tomato. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like he needs to sample product. Yeah, it's his version. Yeah, I love reviewing products. Yeah. Oh, so Mike is on his second diaper now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mike likes sniffing things, finding out smells. Mm-hmm. He's a discoverer. Ben, we're talking about the opium crisis in China. Wow. Can you say opium? Don't be, don't be, con- don't be uh, anti-intellectualist. To who, Ben? Yeah. Well, oh, because he doesn't know it. Oh, okay. I thought you, I thought you said like, wow, like. Oh, mocking us. I thought you were being anti-intellectual. <laughs> Well, some people yeah. do. Some people are into that. Ki- some people are into that kind of thing. Some people like learning about the world yeah. that we inhabit. Don't be anti-intellectual to our peeing in a diaper <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's a little bit of everything. You yeah. know, you can listen to the show with your with your hu- husband. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, but yeah, so the the thesis that I was advancing or that I'm working on is the idea is the current U.S. heroin crisis is like a domestic opium war. And I gave a bunch of examples earlier of uh, places where the U.S. has used drug mafias to kind of control the left and labor or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like Laos and Afghanistan, Colombia, etc. Um, and what has happened is that uh, by using, or like in Sicily and Italy, right after World War II, they used the mafia to control the left and beat up the communists and all that. And what happened was when they used the mafia as their proxy, well, then those mafia forces get a lot stronger, those drug mafias. And that's kind of what's happened. And it's happened so many times since World War II that it, it can't be called an accident. It's a deliberate U.S. policy. And so what's happened since World War II is that all of these drug mafias that have been supported by the CIA, among others, uh, have gotten much more powerful, but the drug trade has also gotten much more lucrative. There are just more drugs being trafficked than there were in the lead up to World War II or during World War II. And uh, now we're kind of seeing that all come home, where you have over 100,000 Americans dying every year of overdose with no sign of that, that slowing down. And, you know, these drug profits from this illicit trade have been used to fund covert operations. You know, you need off off the books money. You're the CIA. You want to do an op that Congress not going to approve of. Well, drug money is a great way of doing it. But they're also... And they just use cash for these operations? Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, well, the, a different example would be when they rigged the election in Italy, one of the first uh, uh, kind of CIA ops. The, uh, in 1948, they just used stolen from, or not stolen, frozen funds from the Nazis, like money the Nazis had stolen that they kind of stole from the Nazis, and then they used it to. How do you but, steal an election in Italy? You just kind of like spin an Italian around two or three times before you put him in the voting booth, uh-huh, uh-huh. and they get dizzy and press the wrong button. Hey, yeah. You you uh, you uh, go to the voters you don't want voting and you have uh, their moms keep them on the phone for seven <laughs> hours. <laughs> yeah, you take away the walking step for them to vote, so they have to jump up and they don't know which button they're pressing. You're like, hey, look, tiny. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so off the books operation is one part, but also just like you know, there have been papers that have suggested that some banks, U.S. and British banks, only survived the 2008 financial crisis because of all the money they make laundering drugs. You know, drugs, illicit drugs are by most estimates the third most valuable commodity in the world. Number one's oil, number two is weapons. And so, yes, the, the there is a lot of money still to this day to be made laundering drugs. So the point is to kind of like bring it all up to the present. It's like this is not ancient history. This is since the 1800s. The elites 
the ruling class have made their money off drugs and they still do. And that money, even if you made it selling drugs in the 1800s, it doesn't go away. It just kind of accumulates over time. What should the punishment be? I feel like they should have to do the drugs now. Whoever starts a crisis like this should have to inject the drug. Yeah, that's a good idea. Thanks. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, uh, Carlin had that bit about the death penalty. Well, it's not going to stop drug dealers. You just got to start putting these bankers to death. Like, drug dealers are not afraid to die. But if you just start fucking beheading some Wall Street guys, Mm -hmm. you know. But, you know, and, like, what I think is interesting, like, reading about the Opium War, I read this book, Imperial Twilight by Stephen R. Platt. I recommend it. It's well-written. It's mostly about the British and American trade with China in the 1800s, but it kind of closes the last 40 or so pages with the Opium War, the first one. But um, what is interesting is, again, this is about the final emperor empire in China, the final dynasty, the Qing dynasty. They were... Um, Whoa. They, <laughs> what did you say? Whoa. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, but they were uh, they were the ones who fought this opium war and lost this opium war. But it's interesting because it's like for posterity today, they're remembered as this corrupt and weak government. But they were trying to protect their citizens from drugs. And you look at the United States today, where, like I said, last year, 100,000 overdose deaths up from 40,000 a decade ago. Mm-hmm. No sign that's going to stop. There'll be another 100,000 next year, probably right. another 100,000. Like the U.S. government is not doing anything to stop this. And it barely gets talked about. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's obviously I've talked, it's kind of personal for me because my brother had, you know, a heroin problem and, you know, he's doing better now. But it's, so many people have lost loved ones or just had families destroyed. And it it really drives me crazy because it's like... Well, the drugs are coming in from Mexico. That's right. So what we can do is we can lock up Mexican children at the border. Right. And that could could help. Well, and that's the thing, you know... (laughs) I was reading a comment on like the episode you guys did without me and somebody was like, finally, a conversation that doesn't devolve into how the CIA is going to make <laughs> Sean kill himself. <laughs> and I was reading that. I was like, oh, great. Well, this is my research for the week. Yeah. You know, Sean was right. like, this guy's in the CIA. He's trying to make me kill myself. He probably is. But it's <laughs> like true. you can look at the, the Qing dynasty. The, the crackdown on opium they tried was actually largely successful. It was only destroyed because the British Navy, the Royal Navy, blew them apart and, you know, shelled all their cities for three years until they were like, okay, yeah, you can sell us opium. So the British were selling opium to the Chinese. Yeah, I mean... In in China. Yes. Uh, There was, of course, you know, eventually there was a domestic source, but originally um, uh, British traders, it was not even the primary part of british trade mm-hmm. it was like the british they became obsessed with chinese tea mm-hmm. you know as soon as like china was discovered and like or you know trade with china started 16 1700s mm-hmm. the british consumers went crazy for tea so they got their tea from china and it was this problem where they didn't have the british didn't have enough silver because that's what how you would buy tea from china is you would have to have silver so the british and the east india company they figured out well we can get silver by selling opium and they would sell it to domestic merchants like chinese merchants or you know they would bring it like right up where is the the opium from they would grow it in india oh so it was like the east india company went into debt Mm. but like india for a while when it was a british colony was run by this private corporation that had like a monopoly from the british government called the east india company and all because the emperor was getting too much pussy yes isn't opium better than silver right um, if you had to go, like, what's? I mean, if you ask your value, grandma, I right? don't know. Yeah, no, like, ask God, right? Mm-hmm. You go, what is superior, hmm. silver 
which is a fucking th- object mm-hmm. or or a drug that makes your brain do a thing. Opium wins every time. How stupid are we? We picked a, a shiny rock over psychedelics yeah. or whatever the fuck it does to you. Yeah. Dumb dicks. Imagine your drug dealer is a fucking red coat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got to pee again. Tell Deb. Um, but anyways, the, the CIA point I wanted to make was the Qing Dynasty crackdown actually largely worked. And it's like, you know, we talk about all these failures of the war on drugs, but there's this quote that I always find striking. It's from Dennis Dale, as a former DEA agent, drug enforcement agent. Uh, and he says, quote, in my 30 year history in the Drug Enforcement Administration and related agencies, the major targets of my investigations almost invari- invariably turned out to be working for the CIA. Unquote. And that's what happened was, you know, in Bolivia, in Mexico with El Chapo, everywhere you go, the big drug kingpins are going to be CIA proxies because, mm-hmm. like, essentially the war on drugs is a joke where uh, the DEA or the FBI or the CIA, they'll pick whichever drug mafia they want to win and they will become an informant. Right. Or like Whitey Bulger in Boston. That right. would be another example he won because he was working with the police they picked him to win right and so you become an informant and you just inform on your rivals and the cops arrest them yeah and essentially the police are becoming a part of your operation or you are becoming a part of the police operation yeah so it's like all this stuff about the war on drugs it's not gonna work as long as we have a central intelligence agency that is using drug mafias as arms of of u.s foreign policy Mm -hmm. and and people think like it's just impossible to suppress drugs Mm -hmm. no it's not the case you can actually crack down on drugs how you have to get rid of the corruption isn't that like you gotta cut you gotta go duterte on them yeah yeah don't you have to be like don't you have to like doesn't the cia have to like start gang warfare he literally just explained it oh he did while i was pissed well it's just like you know um here let me see if i can explain it to you there we go everybody's working with the cia all the drug mafias okay so the drug mafia so the cia picks which drug mafia they want to work with yeah and then they end up because of their connections to the cia yeah they get they're protected more they're protected yeah well because and then local law enforcement can't like do anything yeah, I mean, local law enforcement cannot do anything against the FBI or the CIA, for that matter, even though the CIA is not supposed to operate domestically. But mm-hmm. most p- police departments have an intelligence division that's basically uh, feeds information to the CIA. But yeah, it, it is just something where it's like this kind of corruption, is it's the elephant in the room, where it's like, yes, I do believe in harm reduction. I do believe in legalization, or at least not throwing addicts in jail we should give addicts treatment but it's something where the war on drugs is just a way of driving up prices so that favored clients you know whoever the fbi dea or Mm -hmm. cia is working with they get a much better price Mm -hmm. and their competitors get thrown in jail it's Mm -hmm. not about actual drug prohibition Mm -hmm. um <clears throat> so it's all kind so, of so a way to crack okay. down on people. Yeah, so you know Nixon used it to crack down on his enemies because you know uh, people who were against Nixon, they uh, a lot of them smoked dope or did heroin or whatever. Yeah, it's like hippies and minorities, right? Yeah, it's yeah. perfect. We make yeah, know, yeah, and then just bugging the a random gay bar and just be like, "What are they saying about me in there? <laughs> it smell like dope in here." <laughs> but anyways, that's you know, it's getting all ahead of myself, and I'll just try to run through like a Cliff Notes version of the opium war and just kind of the history here of this, because I do think it's interesting, this 
current heroin crisis we have in America, we can really trace it back to at least the 1800s in China, where they dealt with a very serious and very similar problem, which was, in China, ultimately solved by Mao Zedong. Mm -hmm. the, when the communists took over China, like, I'll give you a crazy statistic. Uh, at the end of the uh, 19th century, so the early 1900s, 30% of the population of China was addicted to opioids. You know that show Shen Yun, and they, they market it as like China before communism? Yeah. Imagine you go, just people in an opium den getting their dick sucked. And you're like, oh, I thought they'd be like dancing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, just like from the New York Times, at the end of the 19th century, uh, China had a population of 300 million, and 90 million of them were addicts. So that's 30% of the population. Damn. And they were all smoking opium. So like we talked about the, the fentanyl overdoses in the United States. Like smoking opium, you're much less likely to die from mm -hmm. an overdose. Mm -hmm. But it's the same exact di addiction where the only thing you want to do is get high. Yeah. You will steal. You will quit your job. You will... You know, uh, prostitute. Stop doing, your, stop doing your podcast. Yes. <laughs> Skip <laughs> episodes of your podcast and not make them up. Right. But you can imagine what, like, a social chaos this was. What a public health emergency when, like, almost one in every three people is a fucking uh, heroin junkie or opium junkie. Mm -hmm. And, like I said, the fucking communists came into power and they cracked down on corruption. Because the, the government before them, Chiang Kai-shek, he was uh, working with what's called the Green Gang, which was a drug mafia, and they were taking a cut of the profits. And it's literally the same fucking thing in the United States, where we have our drug mafias and cartels that we, look, we work with, and yes, our fucking agencies are taking a cut of the profits. So it, it's just like, it's a long way of going to say the United States government, despite what it says on various, you know, Freedom House corruption index rankings it's one of the most corrupt governments on earth and i would argue even more corrupt than the uh, Qing dynasty because at least the Qing dynasty attempted and failed to protect its population from drugs and, and you would think it'd be harder to get people back then off drugs because taking drugs probably felt like the future you know <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's like what else can you do right you tell people nowadays oh do this sport do that sport it was or, drugs or like a cup and ball yeah watch yeah. this yeah do that exactly it's like play hopscotch yeah. Or, or or see God. Right. All right, I'll see God. <laughs> no, don't see God. <laughs> it's bad for you. Yeah, yeah, and then they're like, no, look, we have these finger, Chinese finger traps. And go, what the <laughs> fuck? This is the worst. I want to do heroin. <laughs> they're to stop people from yeah. taking opium. Yeah, they go, no, no, no. They, we, don't, we don't do heroin anymore. Check this out. Yeah, he gave yeah. everybody Chinese finger traps. <laughs> yeah, have you, ever, have you ever read Pride and Prejudice on opium? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're just smoking opium with their thumbs while their fingers are in the trap. <laughs> yeah, finger traps were to stop people from doing opium. Yeah. Like you know, a lot of people don't know this, but the finger trap, you just compress it and then you slide your fingers yeah, you out. slide your finger out. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's not really a fun toy. Yeah, what is that? And why do they call it a Chinese finger trap? Do we well, because you pull it and your fingers get stuck. Cause it, it, but why is, that why is that a Chinese finger trap? Um, that feels like that's... Um, I bet you it's not from China, and I bet you it's a thing mm -hmm. Americans do where it's like, mm -hmm. ah, you're caught. Like, mm -hmm. it's deceptive. You're caught now. It's mm -hmm. like a prisoner of war situation, mm -hmm. you know? Right, right, right. Like, ah, you feel trapped. That's what the Chinese do to, like to your great granddad. You know what? Yeah. That th I don't think they made it. Right. That's some propaganda we did. Right. You can't trust him. You thought it was a toy? It's a trap. Mm -hmm. It's called the Chinese finger trap, you know? I don't know.
That's probably what they did. Yeah. Pieces of shit. Um, but so the actual history of opium in China, to just kind of go back to the beginning and uh, give sort of a Cliff Notes version of all this, is like opium arrives in China in the 7th century AD through uh, probably the Arab trading networks. Um, it was used in China for medicinal purposes. It was like a luxury commodity. It was also apparently given to like concubines and court ladies to enhance sex. You know, it was like an aphrodisiac. It helped with diarrhea, um, used as an anesthetic, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, in the 1600s, when tobacco became like prominent, people figured out you could mix opium with tobacco and, and smoke it. So it's around for like a thousand years, but then somebody's like, oh shit, you can smoke this and, mm. you know, it rocks. And so that starts to take off and China criminalizes the recreational smoking of opium in 1729. Um, but it's still a luxury commodity. It's like most people can't afford it. So a lot of what the book Imperial Twilight's about is what's called the Canton System of Trade that's set up in 1757. And the original solution the Qing Dynasty had for, you know, the the French and the British and the Dutch, they're all sailing around the world and they're showing up in China and they want to trade. So the solution the Qing Dynasty comes up with is we will let them trade at one port, the port of Canton. That's the only place you can trade with. Otherwise, you know, get the fuck out of here. And uh, they allow some foreign traders to live in, like, this one district in Canton. They can live there. No women. Only the men can live there. And they can have what are called factories, even though they're basically called... They're basically warehouses and stores, but they call them factories for whatever reason. And so there's a British factory and, you know, a Dutch factory and an American factory, etc. There's, like, 13 of them. So that's the way the trading system works for almost 100 years, Uh and it's just interesting, like, you know, reading the book Imperial Twilight, kind of learning about this, because it's like a five-month journey from sea, uh, from London to Canton. So you would, like, leave London, and then you would go to Rio de Janeiro, or you would go to the Canary Islands, and then Rio de Janeiro, and then around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa, and, and you would, like, stop at all these trading posts r- along the way. Or, like, the Americans would do a similar thing, you know, five months at sea, but going from Boston or New York, you would go down and around um, uh, Cape Horn at the bottom of South America, but you would stop, like, uh, apparently you would pick up, like, seal skins in the South Atlantic, then you would stop in Mexico and Peru, sell as much of your cargo as possible just to get silver so that you could you know, buy shit with silver in China and stop at various other uh, stops along the way. So it's all pretty interesting, just like imagining what that life is, you know, spending half a year on sea Mm. to get somewhere just to try to make some money so you can, you know, provide for your family or whatever back home. But so the you come back and you have like 10 kids instead of nine. (laughs) Where the fuck did this thing come from? But yeah, so we were talking about the British were growing opium in India And this is like the East India Company. As we mentioned, they ran the British colony of India. Uh, They were in debt from the French and Indian War, which is like 1754 to 1763. They found it difficult to raise silver to purchase tea from the Chinese, which the British public needed. And opium provided a solution. And the East India Company, they did, vast majority of their trade with China was legitimate. And actually, I mean, the East India Company officially banned trade in opium. They didn't bring opium to China. 
because the Chinese government, as I mentioned, they had banned recreational use. They had banned importation of opium. So the East India Company, they have this profitable thing where they, you know, bring wools and cotton or whatever, and they need that tea. That's the most important import they get from China. So they don't trade in opium, but what they do is they grow opium. They have um, uh, in, in Bengal, in India... Um, the East India Company has a monopoly there and they will just grow opium in Bengal and some other places in India and they'll bring it to market in Calcutta and they'll just sell it to people. And it's like, we're not going to ask any questions. We're not going to bring it into China, but we're going to grow opium here and we'll sell it to you and we'll get silver and that'll allow us to buy our tea. But other than that, we don't have anything to do with it. So these private American and British traders would make up the, the final leg of the journey. They would buy their opium you know the americans they got some of it from the turkish or from turkey turkish opium but uh, the most of it came from india either from the part the british controlled or there was also malwa you ever have turkish coffee yeah it's pretty good it's like opium dude it's strong as fuck it's actually the opposite of opium oh because it's, it's an upper. upper yeah god damn it Sorry. well i'm learning about what opium yeah, yeah, is, yeah. and the episode's not over yet so yeah. there might be a twist it yeah might, it might be an upper now for those of us, heel on us. <laughs> he did the research, not you. Maybe in the 1900s. Uh, I did read the outline. Did you read the outline? Did you read the document that he sent? Sure. Yeah, the document. Yeah, I read it. You read it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so the opium becomes a major part of the British East India Company's revenue, the Bengal government's revenue. Um, but it is interesting where uh, the British exports of opium to China start growing around this time so like from about uh 15 tons in 1730 to 75 tons in 1773 um and it keeps growing and so what happens is like these private competitors start springing up like private production competitors so in the 1820s the east india company comes up with this idea to flood the market to destroy their competition, which is still a commonly used business strategy. The idea that you like, you can afford to sell things at a loss and you just keep doing that until your competition goes out of business. It is funny how they call themselves the East India Company, like the implications that they're from India. Like United Fruit Company became Chiquita Banana. Yeah. Like, no, no, we're Chiquita Banana. We're like Latin. Yeah. Yeah. But so the, the East India Company... Um, in the 1820s, they like massively overproduce with the idea to like um, drive down prices and uh, drive out those growers in the parts of India that were not yet controlled by the British. Um, and the prices go down. But what this does is like opium in the 1820s stops being a luxury good in China. And so that's the thing where it's like you had this situation in China in like the 1700s and 1800s where it's like, yeah, there were addicts, but they were like, you know, the dipshit rich kids. The people whose like family could afford to support an opium habit, mm-hmm. but once the price starts collapsing, well, then addiction becomes much more widespread around the populace. So by the 1830s, opium use is widespread among the general population of China. It became a status symbol of wealth and leisure, sort of like cocaine was in the 1980s in the United States. You know, like, hey, come over, I've got some opium. Like, you know, we'll smoke it and we'll chill on the fucking cushions. Uh, you know, it, it becomes a way of showing like, oh, I have some disposable income. I'm a cool guy, you know, whatever else. And as I mentioned at this time, China has a population of about 300 million. There are millions of users and addicts. 
And again, there's not as there are overdose deaths, but it's not as much of a problem. It's just the same symptoms of heroin addiction where you're stealing, you're becoming antisocial, you're not working. So the government of China becomes very concerned about this problem. And particularly, they become concerned because all their silver is getting sent abroad or a lot of their silver is getting sent abroad because... Like, yeah, the British and the Americans or whoever, they're bringing opium into China, but it ultimately it's Chinese merchants who are buying it, uh, you know, even though they're risking death from the government. But what they're doing is they're paying bribes to local Chinese officials and they're bringing it inland. You know, they get their opium offshore or at Canton or whatever, and they bring it in. So it is like it is mainly a problem with like Chinese dealers. Essentially, they have a connect. You know, it's like a, a street gang that buys Colombian cocaine. Well, they're the ones who sell it in America. It's just they make it in Colombia. So that's um, so the Chinese government, the the Qing Dynasty, becomes very concerned about this, and they start cracking down. But what happens is the East India Company they had a monopoly on trade with China that ended in 1833. The East India Company were were the only British allowed to trade with China. And that ends in 1833, so all these other private British traders step in, and this also kind of explodes the opium uh, uh, smuggling and trade, because all these other private traders come in, and as I mentioned, you know, the East India Company, like, they'll grow opium, but they won't bring it into China, whereas all these other private traders will. And uh, William Jardine, who I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, because uh, this uh, this one of the top 200 most valuable companies in the world today, Jardine Matheson, um, William Jardine was at the time, he had one of the largest fleets of private drug smuggling boats in the world. And what he would do is he had ships that were faster than the Chinese Navy, because the Chinese Navy was like outdated technology. So he would just go up and down the coast of China outrunning the government ships and just, you know, selling to Chinese merchants along the coast. And he's Can you like destroy an old ship with a with a hammer though? Yeah, you could. Okay. But I mean like by the 1800s like yeah, it was wood ships, but they were like incredibly complex and powerful frigates, you know, like the British Navy would have these ships with like 79 cannons on it. You know, one cannon for every concubine that the emperor had. <laughs> But, you know, and it's interesting where William Jardine uh, and these other private opium smugglers, they start advocating that the government of Britain go to war with China, like throughout the 1830s, because they're sick of this Canton system that says there's only one port. They want to go to every port, you know, they, they or they want to trade with whoever the fuck they want, because the other part of the Canton system is... There's the what are called the Hong merchants. So the, the, the British and the Americans and whoever, they can only trade with the designated merchants that the Chinese government says you can trade with. And they say, fuck that. We should be able to go into any city in China and just trade with whoever, mm-hmm. you know, and all this kind of stuff. So they're advocating for a war. And, um, and these forces kind of uh, come into conflict because, simply enough, the Chinese, they ramp up their suppression in 1837. They spend two years kind of cracking down. And honestly, as I mentioned earlier... It's it's largely successful. I mean, it was brutal. They would just, like, execute dealers. <laughs> like, there was a... Uh, I mentioned the British and the Americans, they lived at these factories in the Canton district. So, like, one case, they, like, found an opium, a Chinese opium merchant that, you know, who bought from the British, and they just, like, crucified him right outside the British factory. Hmm. Like, you know, just killed the guy and left him there as a message, you know. Uh, but But that kind of stuff. So it's, like... 
they they kind of stamped out a corruption, but b just the the actual method in which opium was getting into the country. And so there was this period where it's like, yeah, the opium trade was starting to fall apart. But then what happened is um, the emperor sends this imperial commissioner, Lin uh, Zizhu, down uh, to stamp out the trade in Canton. Uh, and he actually still to this day has a, a, chi- a, a statue of him in Chinatown in New York as like one of the original drug war crusaders. No uh, shit. But so what he did was in 1839... He goes down to the trading port of Canton. He arrests like uh, a lot of the Chinese dealers. He has a few of them executed. Um, but what he does is he demands that the, all the foreigners turn over their entire stock of opium, like the British, the Americans, the Dutch, whoever. You know, he's saying no more opium comes to the country. You got to give us everything you have. And uh, he shuts down the entire Canton trade and he barricades all the foreigners inside their, tra- inside their factories and says, you can't come out until I get my opium. And so eventually the British commissioner, Charles Elliott, he comes up with this idea and he promises all the opium traders, hey, give me your opium. I'll give it to him and the British government will pay you back. And so they do because it's like, well, that's our best option because now we can lobby the British government. And it is apparently worth about $10 million in American dollars in 1839, whatever that's worth today. I'm sure billions. And uh, so the British government back home, they find out about this, you know, because like I said, it takes six, five months. So it takes a while for news to reach. Mm. But they find out about this and they're like, yeah, we don't want to pay $10 million. Let's just go to war and make the Chinese pay $10 million. And so, so that's in 1839 how the first opium war starts is the British government didn't want to pay back these opium smugglers and these opium smugglers and other powerful merchants were all saying, all lobbying for war. So it just became a, a solution of our Navy is better than theirs. We can just shell them and make them pay this money that we don't feel like paying. Mm-hmm. Well, is that like if, if Mexico had a stronger military than us and was like, we want to sell drugs? Yeah. In your country, literally, they just that yeah, fucked us up. Yeah, and it was like a thousand tons of opium that was, you know, turned over to the Chinese, and they destroyed it all. And then, you know, five months later, the Royal Navy shows up, and the first opium war is eighteen thirty nine to eighteen forty two, and it's literally just three years of naval slaughter and shelling, where the Royal Navy is so much more advanced, they'll just pull up to these various cities on the coast and just hit them with cannons until they surrender and hmm. it goes on for three years apparently they uh, eventually sailed up to nanking and threatened to like sell the shell the city and then the chinese capitulate it china gives britain 21 million as part of the u.s dollars at the time whatever that translates to uh, so they pay the opium dealers back their 10 million and then they keep the rest for like oh this is what it cost us to shell you Damn. these were our military costs they and probably gave out free samples of opium too right <laughs> yeah you think you'd attack a village and then go here you go try to get hooked on this it's pretty sick yeah yeah that is pretty humiliating yeah yeah and that's like you know you can understand why the chinese communist party today in china is like so let's strict well, they're not trust. They don't want the yeah. international. His son trust died at a yeah. dance. That's why. Yeah, it's justified. I mean, it's literally that. Like all these NGOs that want like China to open up and let the international monetary fund in there and stuff. And it's like, yeah, they don't trust Whitey with very good reason mm-hmm. because you were uh, getting the population addicted to drugs so you could pay for your tea. Yeah. Yeah, but now they're getting us addicted to. TikTok, <laughs> yeah. Sean. Yeah, it's true. 
That's true. I can't stop. That's our. That's our opium. That's our opium. That's our. That's our opium. Inject that shit into my veins. Jeez. Chinese aircraft carrier shows up outside DC when they try to ban TikTok. Scott says one super insightful thing for every ten of the most (laughs) retarded statements you've ever heard. Um, but you know, and it it just kind of continues from there. So in this first treaty, uh, the British get Hong Kong. Uh, they end this uh, Hong trading monopoly, so the Why British you can change the name of Hong Kong if you got if you were British. And you yeah, got I it. changed it to like Edmondsville or something. Yeah, when you go Hong Kong, yeah. no, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make a statement. right? Well, no, but I think part of like probably imperialism is you want to like blend in, right? Yeah, I guess you so. want your stuff to blend with the locals. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure they're exact. I think to really own a people. It's called Jimmy Seviltown. <laughs> yeah, it'd be funny if you change. I think you really want to conquer. It's named a after the worst things about England. The Taliban, they're going to take over Afghanistan when, when we leave. Well, mm. not if we call Afghanistan, you know, Poo Poo Pee Peeville. <laughs> yeah. Why would the Taliban want to run Poo Poo Pee Peeville? Right. We should go, yes, we take over. Yes, we'll give you your own government and mm. let you vote. But we do decide the name of the place. Mm-hmm. And it's not Afghanistan anymore. Mm. Um, no yeah but I mean it's just like okay this is the first so 1842 the first opium war ends and this begins the century of humiliation which is the first of the what are called the unequal treaties the British say you know we get Hong Kong you have to open five Chinese ports it's not just Canton anymore you have to give us five places where we can trade one of which is uh, Shanghai uh, which becomes you know one of the biggest cities in the world as a result um, it uh, in a later uh, treaty a year later it gave uh, British citizens extraterritorial immunity where it's like if you commit a crime and you're British in China you can't get punished under Chinese law we'll punish you under British law mm. so it just said like our citizens can do what the fuck we want mm. we'll, we'll take care of them if there's a problem uh, gave Britain most favored nation status and then as soon as Britain gets this then like the Americans come in and they get it and then the French come in and they get it and so you know then there's the second opium war is 1856 to 1860 where it's like they essentially and this is what we mean by the century of humiliation it's a century where they just kept taking more and more and more and more because even after this first war like apparently British imports uh, from China were still nine times exports so they're like, hey, we're losing our silver. We got to, you know, we need more treaty ports. We need more access to all this. And the British and the French together this time in the Second Opium War, this, uh, they spend four years slaughtering everyone and shelling cities. It ends in 1860. British and French troops land near Beijing. They fight their way into the city. And they um, basically storm the Imperial Summer Palace. And they loot it. And even some artifacts in the British Museum today are just stuff that British troops in 1860 like went into the Emperor's Palace and stole and brought back to to Britain. Wow! Fuck. You know, you know, to be I mean, the Chinese obviously an oppressed people, right? Um, and that time, I don't know what you're allowed to say about Chinese people, and they go, "We're not fucking oppressed." You go, "Okay, I yeah, don't know." Right. Um, fuck, I forget my point. Well, I was gonna say, was I mean, so this, good, this policy is definitely this. This policy has got to be rooted in uh, white supremacy, right? Like you wouldn't do this to people if you thought they were uh, equal to you. Well, I mean, sort of, but like the Slavs, you know, Eastern Europeans, like the Western Europeans did it to Eastern Europeans, even though like technically by skin color they were white. But mm-hmm. you know, it's just like anybody you think is lesser or weaker than you, it's. It's more about resources than race, but then mm-hmm. once you're exploiting and 
doing horrible shit to somebody, you do need a mental justification for why it's okay. Mm -hmm. And that's where uh, the racial stuff comes in because you're like, oh, they're inferior. They need me to guide them and teach them and make all the decisions or whatever else. Right. I, I remember what I was going to ask. So, you know, they have this opio, uh, opioid crisis, right? So people say that, like, uh, the you know, what what was the drug, the warrant or whatever, the whatever they did to the cities in the 70s and 80s and whatnot mm -hmm. helped birth hip hop. What Chinese art is there? I'm, I, I'm, I, it's my ignorance. I'm unfamiliar with Chinese uh, breaking music. the feet of women. No, yeah. what is what is Chinese art though? Like what Chinese art came out of their oppression? I'm just unfamiliar. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, massive rebellions where tens of millions of people died. I mean, like, yeah, a lot of great uh, literature and um, there's great Chinese literature. Yeah, there is. Yeah, um, and a lot of like, I mean, honestly, I think. <laughs> what came out of all this is today the most effective economic. You're saying why is there no Chinese hip hop? That's what there is Chinese hip hop. There's Chinese yeah. hip hop. There is yes. Okay. It probably goes fucking hard, dude. Mm. But I mean, like the main thing, in my opinion, that came out of it is like a government system that works an economic system that works extremely well. Where it's like what the Chinese did, the Chinese Communist Party, they said the West could come back in. But what they said this time in, you know, the 70s and 80s under Deng Xiaoping, they said, okay, you guys can come in, you can sell shit, but first rule, we own all the land. We own everything. You have no private, like, technically you can lease it, you can have quote-unquote private property rights, but at the end of the day, we still own everything. And number two, you want to come in, you want to sell to our people, you want access to our markets, we need your technology. They did all these forced technology transfers where foreign companies would come in, but it's like, hey, let us look at the blueprints. Let us figure out this. And then we're going to have a state-owned enterprise. The Chinese government will own this company. It's going to copy your technology, and it's going to make a product. And eventually, now it's going to outcompete you because all these uh, uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises are winning the global market, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, Highway or whatever, mm -hmm. or, you know, TikTok. Because they're fucking, doing it better. Yeah. They're stealing the blueprints. Yeah, and, and it's like... That's why Jay-Z doesn't write down his raps. Yeah, and they're doing high-speed rail. He doesn't want the Chinese government stealing his raps. Right. And it's like, you and know... They're like, doing high-speed rail, and we're doing loops of Tesla cars going in circles in yeah, Vegas. So we're doing Uber. We just look so... Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. And, like, all these Western companies are bitching about, oh, the Chinese stole our technology. But it's like, that was the fucking deal. Yeah. That was the contract you said. Yeah, you yeah. want to, that's what they gave you. Right. If you want to come into China, you agree to our terms. Well, it's like, okay, they copied our stuff. But, like, how many times were you, like, in math class and you copied, <laughs> you know, the Asian kid's paper next to you? <laughs> so if everybody only copies Joe Rogan everybody. cared about the Chinese stealing our stuff uh, as much as he cared about Carlos Mencia stealing jokes. Mm hmm. I think he could really save the country if mm -hmm. he just flipped out on the Chinese government like he did Carlos Men, I believe he called him Menstelia. Yeah. Because he owns, what a sick burn. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so the second Opium War, then there's another treaty after that one. It opens up like five more treaty ports that the Europeans have access to. And that one kind of forced the de facto legalization of opium in 1860. And, uh, you know, there's a variety of other treaties that kind of follow after. But what's interesting is, like, with the de facto legalization of opium, like, the original guy, William Jardine, who uh, advocated the British government go to war, he actually didn't want opium legalized because he realized, oh, I have this private fleet of smugglers. If you legalize it, I lose my competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to... Sexually? Yes. 
he wanted to to be able to smuggle opium and he wanted the Chinese government crippled, but he didn't want it de facto legalized because what happens is once they de facto legalize it, well, all the Chinese opium growers take over. So by the 1870s, the majority of the opium is like grown by Chinese people in China. And it becomes this spiraling public health crisis where the Chinese government is now dependent on the drugs that they grow within China because they can get tax revenue. They're dependent on the drugs that they give to the population that, you know, costs all their money and makes them into addicts, but also placates them and just kind of makes China vulnerable to the century of humiliation where 30 percent of their population is drug addicts their technology is outdated and they're just pushed around by the russians the japanese the americans the british the french everybody just pushes them around for a century and it's just something where it's like i mentioned at the beginning my theory on the the american the current opioid epidemic as a domestic opium war and it's what that means to me is like they don't care that 100,000 Americans die every year, but also they're kind of glad that everybody's sort of zapping and satiating themselves on drugs. Mm -hmm. Because as long as you're like a fucking, you know, fentanyl addict, Mm -hmm. you're certainly not any threat to the system. Mm -hmm. You know, and the people who die, well, they don't give a, the government doesn't give a fuck and they spread all these justifications about how they're addicts and they're weak and they deserve it and all that. And so it's... Whoa, whoa, whoa. What about Hunter Biden, though? Yeah. That guy rules. What about him? I don't know. People are saying that the, the, that everybody shits on him, says they're, that they're bad people. I disagree. I think Joe Biden says he's a good guy, right? Yeah. Do you yeah. just say stuff just to <laughs> talk? Like sometimes? No, he, they said that he said the government makes heroin addicts out to be bad people. Yeah. He said Joe Biden says his son's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it doesn't really have much to do with... He's talking about like mass, mass num- massive numbers uh, of people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, anyway. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, look, that's kind of, again, it's a, it's a Cliff Notes version of the history, but I think it's it's very instructive because, like I said, you know, the, the Qing Dynasty eventually collapsed in the, like, 1911 or around then, and then the Chiang Kai-shek, eventually the Republicans, the Chinese nationalists take over, and uh, they're working with the triads, to push drugs because they derive their money from it. And then Mao Zedong and the communists come in and they abolish the drug trade. And they finally, they, you know, this country where, again, at the turn of the century, 30%, 90 million addicts, they finally turn the corner. And, you know, China still has some drug problems, but it's not an epidemic. It's not like it is in the United States. And it's just something where it's like the lesson for the United States is, we can fix this drug problem, but you're never going to do it unless you fix the corruption. Unless you fix the corruption of, you know, the CIA, the DEA, all these agencies that were, you know, the politicians, the banks, the fucking banks are the main problem where they get so much of their profit laundering drug money. Until you're willing to destroy these institutions, or not destroy, break up these institutions. Tell them who is boss. I mean, that's what that's what fucking happens when a Mao Zedong takes power. You know, you can right. you can disagree with his methods, killing a million landlords and just <laughs> putting dunce caps on teachers and having their students throw stones at them, and you know, fucking leaving several uh, uh, hundred thousand or million dead bodies all over the place. But what happens is the social order gets overturned. 
And you can actually, these, these corrupt institutions that are sitting at the top of the pile, they get shaken up and they get reformed. And that's exactly what happened with the communists and Mao and, you know, eventually uh, with Deng Xiaoping. And Mao just died of old age, right? He wasn't assassinated or anything. No, he died of old age. Yeah. But, you know, and then you get... You got to swing your dick around sometimes. Yeah. What you're saying. And you get Deng Xiaoping's market reforms, which essentially create a system that within this decade, the Chinese economy will be bigger than the United States economy. It is a better functioning economic system than ours. Right. And so it is just something where these problems, this opioid epidemic we're having in America, this it's solvable, it's fixable, but... It's not fixable unless we're going to deal with the corruption of the United States government and the institutions and the banks and the people who are in power right now, and they don't want to talk about it. They want you to not give a fuck that 100,000 Americans die every year because they don't want to change any of that stuff. They mm -hmm. don't want to fix any of those institutions, and we need, like, overhaul. We need mm -hmm. to tear them down mm -hmm. and, you know, execute at least a few people. And we need to shoplift from Whole Foods. That's right. Right. One of the things you can do. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. For yeah. sure, do that. What do you think is going to be the turning point in terms of heroin in America? When will we stop? You think the CIA will kill Hunter and say it's not all just dick pics and getting head? It's also bad for you. <laughs> right. They have to. <laughs> well, they're going to keep him alive because he makes doing drugs look good. Look awesome. So he's like a You're role right. model. Yeah. So yeah. I think what I think what what happens we have to kill Hunter Biden. Or somebody who listens to the show. No, I don't think you could say that. No, someone who listens to the show. I think he was allowed to say that. <laughs> Please has to murder Hunter Biden. Yeah. Mike goes two minutes ago, do you just say anything you want? And he's like, someone who listens to our show. Well, no, we come to the conclusion that he's making dr doing drugs look cool. Mm. So yeah, somebody's like take him out. he's like a heroin Fonzie, I think. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's like funny where... He's like, a. Hey. Just <laughs> <laughs> Almost falls over, but doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just drooling on himself. <laughs> Sold his leather jacket for four dollars. <laughs> All right. Well, then he, he, uh, he takes the jukebox money to get a fix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he punches the jukebox, <laughs> takes the quarters out of it. It really yeah. does feel, I mean, like, China must, if... Francia, I gave you money for drugs already. If the opioid issue was <laughs> you such You said you are going to go buy a tie and try to get a job. <laughs> I would assume China Mrs. still C, probably come looks, on. looks down on, on, uh, on heroin, right? I mean, I know everybody does. But yeah. they probably look at it as, like, this history that we, they like overcame. It's, right? it's, like, it's like our slavery. Yeah, they right. must like mock us for having it. heroin addicts in our country the way we do. Right. It's like It, it must be hilarious to them. We overcame this 100 years ago. And mm -hmm. look, we passed it on to them. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, like, and there's all this right wing talk about how China's sending us fentanyl, which is like somewhat true. Like they do manufacture sent fentanyl in China, but it's like it's not their fucking fault. Like, is there it's a not purpose the, for fentanyl that, that isn't mer ruining a good time? Yeah. It's <laughs> overdosing immediately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What is is there a purpose I for think fentanyl? It's, is it, isn't it horse tranquilizer? Well, it's no, just I like it's, was... it's it's extremely yeah. powerful uh, opioid, like way more powerful than morphine, basically. So Why are they cutting cocaine with it? 
Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's a bad idea because you have all these overdoses and some people have been arrested, you know. Yeah, like, you go, who would want an overdose like on their hands? Mac yeah. Miller's dealer got 20 fucking years or something crazy, you know. Yeah. So imagine that and the court just has to be like, Mac Miller's right. music justifies even more punishment. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, sure. Well, I'm just trying to do a line. Your Honor, Your Honor, he was appropriating black culture. Yeah, that's what the defense says. He was doing microaggressions. Um, but no, that's not his culture, Your Honor. He was a bad man. But like the long and short of rapping it, or doing heroin. Uh, rap, yeah. yeah, the long and short of it is the opium or the heroin equivalent epidemic in China. It came there because the most powerful navy in the world at the time said, you have to let us sell you heroin. Mm-hmm. And now the most powerful navy in the world, that's the United States Navy. And they're saying to us, the citizens of the United States, you have to let us sell you heroin. Wow. Because it, it is just something where the United States government is so divorced from any service of the interests of the people who actually live here. It is, I mean, yes, an occupying government and they are now just selling us drugs to wash their covert operations and make sure all their banker friends make a lot of money mm-hmm. laundering the money. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is just a, it's a grim situation where we have a, a we have our own opium war, but it's a domestic yeah. one. I was going to yeah. overthrow the government, but instead, I all I want to do is suck dick in front of a McDonald's right. heroin. Oh, dang it. <laughs> dang you opioids. I was going to change the world. I mean, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Did you pee yourself again, Mike? No, I uh, I did like half a pee in the diaper, and then I went and changed it. Now I'm just wearing regular underwear. I mean, that was fine. Yeah. That was fine. Like doing doing that little stunt. We'll yeah. do more diaper related stuff grown a in lot the future. Since the beginning of this episode. Mike's uh, Mike's d- adult diaper reviews on yeah. the Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, please uh, subscribe to the made. Patreon where Michael shit in his in his diaper. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, I'm gonna poop in the diaper poop on Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> yeah, if you're a, a fentanyl addict getting paid twenty dollars to suck mm-hmm. dick, why don't you throw five of those our way and head over yeah, to patreon.com slash out for smokes. Um but yeah, we appreciate you a lot and uh we'll we'll have I want to do more episodes about uh, the the American heroin crisis specifically in the future. And, yeah, and for all sure. This. So we'll we'll return to the topic, but uh, I just think it's interesting to go back in the past and start and see how these things all evolved. For sure. And we're not sure when this is going to come out, but I will be at Sisyphus Brewing Company this weekend, November, uh, I'm sorry, January 13th and 14th. Get your tickets. Uh, go to you Google it. You'll find it. Sisyphus Brewing Company, Minneapolis. And... Um, that's it. Support the Patreon, patreon.com slash out for smokes. This is uh, Mike, Scott, and Sean saying uh, good night. Catch you later. Hey. <laughs> bye bye.